Well, this morning we come back to one of the most substantial ministries in the history of the world. In Matthew chapter 3, as we are surveying, if you will, the ministry of John the Baptist. And although we don't have a lot of information given to us in the scriptures on John the Baptist, we have the words of Christ who memorialized him in Matthew 11 saying, truly among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. His greatness is measured not only because of his role in history coming right before the time of the Messiah, but his greatness is also measured because because of his faithfulness to that role. And uh, we have been taking some time looking at this and trying to understand this man and his ministry and his greatness. And you could define his ministry pretty simply. It was simply preparing the way for the Lord. Or we might say it this way, preparing people's hearts for the Lord. Now, you might assume that to be a strange and unnecessary task. You might assume that an almighty God, an all-powerful God, doesn't need someone to come prepare the way for him. Or he doesn't need someone to prepare people's hearts for him. You might assume that in God's power and his might, he just deals directly with people. He speaks directly into their hearts. He It's just a a matter of his own divine timing, but when he's ready to work, he just works. There's no need for preliminary work. There's no need for preparation. There's no need for any of that stuff. There certainly have been occasions when God has done such a thing, just moved in people's hearts, and, and those who are blinded by grace, he has penetrated with his with his amazing power. But the reality is, in the normal course of life. God chooses most often, by far, to work through the ordinary means of preparation. He has chosen that people, by a process of their growing understanding, their growing awareness of their sin, their growing recognition of the things that are falling apart in their life, their growing sense of darkness that surrounds them, their growing despair and hopelessness, their growing sense of a need for deliverance and a Savior that God often prepares people so that they're ready to receive Him when the time comes. Their hearts are fully open. You might think about it this way. There are a number of blinders and obstacles in a person's heart that need to be removed and dealt with before they're ready to receive the Lord. And John came to deal with those obstacles. He came to try to remove all of those, all of those impediments. He, tra- he came to try to prepare people for their face-to-face encounter with the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus. He came to get them ready so that they would hear and they would understand the message when he came. And his primary way of preparing them focused on one key issue. If his, if his ministry was uh, aimed at the purpose of preparing them, his means was to deal with one issue, which is shallow repentance. Shallow re- repentance, the kind of response to the gospel that might, on the outside, look impressive for a moment, but it's temporary, it is facile, it is deadly in the end. It's superficial, which 
To be honest, it's always been a problem with religion. We don't have time to trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, but you can see from the very beginning whether it is uh, Cain or whether it is the many who have followed after him in his footsteps, it has been a perpetual problem that is a part of the nature of humanity to want to offer up in their religious pretense a superficial show of religion, a superficial kind of repentance. John understood that. Jesus understood that. Every faithful minister of the gospel understands that. They understand the creeping danger that is always afoot when it comes to the issue of superficial, shallow repentance. For some people, they imagine that the way you might prepare someone's heart is through what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called easy believism, trying to persuade them to receive Jesus by stripping away everything that sounds confrontational, by stripping away everything that might be somewhat offensive. They confuse the real obstacles. They assume that the obstacles in someone's heart are the message itself, or maybe even the Savior. John understood, however, that the obstacles were in us. The obstacles were in our hearts. They reveal themselves in all of our attempts to be religious without truly being repentant. Shallow repentance. And John, quite frankly, wanted to be no party to anyone who was playing such games. He didn't want to be like Charles Finney, who at the end of his life said, quote, it seems to have been the lot of my life to have induced many temporary conversions, end quote. He didn't want to reach the end of his life and be looking back at all the people they tried to minister to and realize that none of them are involved with religion anymore. None of them are pursuing Christ anymore. None of them are sincere anymore. All of them have fallen away. He doesn't want to be one of those people. All of us have seen enough of that in our life. We've all seen temporary repentance, temporary religion. The kind of emotional drama that does nothing to cleanse your heart or save your soul. We've all seen too much of that. We need a ministry like John's. We need a ministry that understands how to prepare people's hearts. We need a ministry that understands what the real issues are and speaks to them in the clearest possible ways. Well, John is a paradigm for us. And so we've been taking our time looking at this as much, uh, in, in as much uh, care as we can and the primary source text for us is the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. I want to begin our time again by just reading this entire passage for us and, and then taking note of the, those features of John's ministry that are necessary to understand his preparatory work. It says in John three, excuse me, Matthew 3, 1, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our fathers, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Now, really, a number of points, seven of them, as we've been pointing out, a number of ways in which we can understand John's preparatory ministry here. The first, as we saw last time, was simply the place that he preached. He was out in the wilderness. He was kind of in the traditional place that was always spoken of to speak about spiritual barrenness. So he he set himself in that context, in that framework. And and Matthew tells us about that in verse 1. And in verse 2, he tells us about the preparation, what he was actually demanding of the people. Just succinctly, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's just a one-sentence summary of his message, repentance and the kingdom. The announcement of this kingdom, which was not a material kingdom in and of itself, it was a kingdom that was spiritual and physical. It was a, a kingdom that required spiritual preparation before you ever had any hope of entering it one day in his full outward manifestation. And that spiritual preparation required repentance. Now with all that, when we come to verse 3, Matthew wants to tell us then why, if you will, all this was taking place. And he gives us a prophecy to help us understand also John's ministry, a prophecy that he fulfilled. He tells us, That the reason John preached all this, the reason he was preaching the way he was preaching is because this was what the prophetic context called for. He uses that word at the beginning of verse 3, for. It's giving you the reason. It's giving you the, the cause of this, the purpose, I should say. The purpose of all this is the context of all of the Old Testament testimony to help us understand how John and others were preparing the way for the Messiah. Because God had ordained it this way. God had called for it this way. In fact, he quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, who had said as much 700 years earlier. In fact, he's quoting from Isaiah 40, where Isaiah is talking about the entire Messianic age. And if you wanted to think about the book of Isaiah in real simple terms, you can split it in half. Chapters 1 through 33 basically kind of recount the judgment of God that he was going to pour out on Israel. Chapters 40 through 66 talk about the hope for the future. And so he quotes from this second half of Isaiah, the very beginning of the second half there in chapter 40. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote from this passage as they introduce John's ministry. 
And while it may not strike you as a big deal, it was a big deal to first century readers because they all understood this. They all understood Isaiah. They all understood what Isaiah was about. They all understood that Isaiah talked about this coming age. In fact, this was one of the most cited passages in all of Jewish literature outside the Bible as they talked about their expectations. For example, the Psalms of Solomon, which were an extra-canonical work written right before the time of Christ, they spoke about a voice of one standing on the on the towers of Jerusalem and proclaiming the time of the Messiah, bringing out a voice of good news, even flattening the mountains and leveling the ground. That's all language that comes straight out of Isaiah 40. This is the language, by the way, of an emperor, as we talked about last time, who traveling to distant lands would have sent people ahead of him to remove all of the obstructions and the debris and fill up all the potholes to make their journey as quick and as easy as possible as, a, as they moved from one location to, a, to another. This is the ministry of preparation. This is, this is how Isaiah says it in the 40th chapter. He opens that, that second half of his book with these grand words, comfort, comfort, My people, says the Lord, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Why? Because her iniquity is pardoned and she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this is Isaiah turning his mind beyond all the judgment to a day when he says a time when the iniquity of Israel will be pardoned. A time when God's wrath is past. A time, you might say, of spiritual restoration. And then immediately he says in verse 3, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and even uh, an uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places made into a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is a time announcing the arrival of the Lord and His glory being revealed, not just to Israel, but to all flesh, to everyone, Jew and Gentile. Now, it's important to take note of that because so many people have mistakenly read Isaiah 40 as simply a promise to the exiles who had been taken captivity in in, um, 586 B.C. And they assume that the first half of Isaiah is addressed to them, those who were taken captivity and under God's judgment, and they assume the second half of Isaiah is written to them whenever they're in captivity, promising their restoration in 536 B.C. But in fact, the passage never even mentions captives. It never even talks about them. In fact, most scholars have noted that if you were to make your way back from Babylon, for example, back to Israel, you wouldn't pass through the desert. You would actually go up and around. The traditional route going to Israel was up and over the desert. So this passage about preparation in the desert really has nothing to do with them or their return. It's a passage about the coming of the Lord. It's a passage about the the coming of the Messiah. 
And this is really what takes up all of Isaiah 40 through 66 over and over again as he lays out particularly four songs celebrating a coming servant of the Lord. The servant songs as they're known. One of them most famously in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The servant whose coming is going to atone for our sins. All of that is there, but in the first 11 chapters, he's announcing this. He's announcing that there's going to be an era of pardon for iniquity, pardon for sins, and an era when the revelation of God's glory would come in a very direct and personal way. In fact, that's very much the theme, if you think about it, very much the theme of Isaiah, the glory of the Lord. It began all the way back in chapter 6 when Isaiah himself had a personal experience with the glory of the Lord. He saw him high and lifted up and sitting on his throne. And now as you come to Isaiah 40, he's announcing with very similar language and a very similar kind of way that there's going to be this kind of experience on a worldwide scale. An announcement of God's coming glory. Much, much more than just a return from Babylon. In fact, over and over again, Isaiah uses this language of flattening mountains, of raising highways, of leveling out all the treacherous uh, pathways in order to prepare people's hearts to receive God. All this language picturing spiritual transformation that has to take place, God humbling people's pride, God covering over their hubris, God uh, bringing them down to uh, to their knees, God, if you will, covering over all of their dark places. Isaiah 49, the Lord says to His servant, it's too light a thing that you would become a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel, I'll make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 8 of that chapter, he says, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you in a day of salvation, I've helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to a portion desolate, or you might say arid places saying to prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They'll feed along the ways and all the bare heights, it will be their pasture. They shall no longer hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching wind nor the sun strike them, for he has pity on them. He'll lead them by springs of water, he'll guide them. And I'll make all of my mountains a road and all of my highways will be raised up. Isaiah 57 It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 62, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of all its stones, lift up a signal for the peoples, behold, the Lord proclaims to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. 
Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So this is all over Isaiah. Prepare the way, prepare the way, prepare the way. Bring down the mountains, raise up all the low places, make all the obstructions disappear, make a preparation for people's hearts. All of this picturing Israel in their spiritually desolate, spiritually arid desert places and God creating roadways by removing, if you will, spiritual obstacles so that he can enter into a relationship with them. So the focus of all this is in this prophetic context is this need for Israel to have spiritual preparation. And it wasn't just one messenger, by the way. John the Baptist is clearly understood. He, he, he's read Isaiah. He understood the, the need of it. He understands what he needs to do in his ministry. But he wouldn't be the only one. Every faithful believer who read that understood the need for spiritual preparation and they wouldn't leave the work to someone else. And so John sounded forth the message that Isaiah was calling for. And every faithful preacher sounds forth the message that Isaiah is calling for. Helping people get to that place of a lowly and contrite heart. Ready to receive the Lord. Well, there's another way we can understand his ministry as well. Not just that prophetic passage that predicts what he's going to be doing. But in verse 4, the profile he adopted as well. Which is also sort of out of, if you will, the Old Old Testament context. Because he... He takes up this austere garb. The Bible says he's dressed himself in camel's hair. And he ate simple food. He ate locusts and wild honey, which is, probably makes you a little squeamish. But in those days, that would have been, that would have been something people did. Uh, they ate locusts uh, in many ways, but it represented simple food. Food that you could just sort of harvest from almost anywhere in the ground. In fact, people would sometimes, if you will, they would sometimes stir fry these these uh, locusts in the honey. But all of this is simply pu- putting John in a certain context. The simplicity of his life. He was putting him in the context of Old Testament prophets, who in so many ways acted out. Their message. They didn't just preach it, they acted it out. So you have men like Isaiah who stripped off all of his clothes and wandered around naked, we're told in Isaiah chapter 20. Or you have Jeremiah who walked around with a cattle yoke for weeks around his neck. Or you have Jeremiah in Jeremiah 13 who takes and buries his loincloth going for days out into the desert to put it into a rock and then coming back. Or in another instance, Um, uh, buying a deed to a useless piece of property. So this is what the prophets did. They didn't just speak a message, but they lived it out. They gave it in visual terms. Hosea married a prostitute. He named his daughter Lo-Ruamai, which is basically unloved. So even, he sort of even lived this out with uh, with his daughter. I don't, I'm sure she took a nickname later on in life. Who wants to go around with that name? But this is, this is how how embedded they were in their message. His clothing and his diet were part of his message. Don't confuse that, by the way, to assume 
that he's calling everyone else to live or to dress this way or to eat this way. John never required that of any way, anybody. In fact, Jesus himself didn't live this way. Later on, he'll talk about how they condemn John the Baptist for eating no bread and drinking no wine, saying he has a demon, but the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you look at him, say, a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus didn't eat this way. He didn't live this way. John doesn't want people to sort of take on some sort of monastic vow of poverty. None of that is what is the focus of John. He's not focused, in fact, on any of those exterior things. He's just taking on the traditional garb of a prophet. In fact, Hebrews 11.37 talks about prophets. It says, who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. It was sort of the proverbial garb of a, of a prophet. Zechariah 13 actually warns about some false prophets who dress themselves in hairy cloaks just in order to deceive people. But this was especially the kind of garb that was associated with Elijah. It was associated with Elijah. In 2 Kings, the king of Israel had a terrible sort of illness and wanting to be healed, he sends his messengers out to the oracle of a false prophet to inquire of the false false god, excuse me, the oracle of a false god to inquire of them about how he could be healed. And on their way, they run into a man who rebukes them and stuns them. In fact, they're so stunned, they don't even go on to the oracle. They just kind of return dazed to the king to report to him what happened. And the king, Ahaziah, asked them, well, what, what did this prophet look like? And they said to him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather was about his waist. And Ahaziah responds, no doubt with a tone of contempt, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And he could recognize him just because of the way he dressed. He was identifiable that way. Well, this is the way John dressed. And he did it, I'm sure, to, if for no other reason, establish a link in people's minds with this age-old ministry of Elijah. In fact, you remember Jesus will later on explicitly identify Jesus with Elijah, the Elijah of the past and the Elijah to come. Matthew 11, he says, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Later on, Matthew 17, the disciples ask, why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he says, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples then understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. This is John. He even dressed in a way to, to bring back these sort of visual images in their minds. A sort of cultural connection in their minds with this age-old preacher. Whatever his full motivations were, there's one thing we could say for sure of Elijah. We could say the same thing of John. Whatever it was, he felt absolutely no need 
to connect to society in some sort of social, savvy, fashionable way. He was, in fact, disconnected from society in almost every way, and his clothing and his diet demonstrated that. Everyone's chasing after some sort of connection to the world. He, he wanted none of that. Here is Jesus' favorite preacher, utterly disconnected from his cultural setting, and but, but boldly confronting the culture with the message of God. Dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts, living out in the desert, unfamiliar with what took place at the epicenter of the city, at the epicenter of all of the establishment, all the ebbs and flows of the culture. Here was a man who in his lifestyle and his message made no attempt at being relevant because the strength of his message, or excuse me, the strength of his ministry was his message. It was his message. It was crystal, crystal clear. And remarkably, people were initially drawn to it in droves, as a matter of fact, which is another element there in verse 5 through which we can understand John's ministry, and that's the popularity he was experiencing. He was perhaps the most popular preacher of his generation. Matthew 5 tells us that, uh, Matthew 3, 5 tells us that Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Massive, massive amounts of people, as we said last time, it would have taken him two or three days to make this journey, to walk all the way out to where he was in the Jordan. But there was a massive, massive response. In fact, it was so good, so big, I should say, it was even noted by Josephus, uh, the eminent Jewish historian who himself was certainly no Christian and no friend of Christianity, but he records the popularity of John's ministry. He writes in his, in his work, he says, now when others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved by the hearing of his words, Herod who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. He thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it it should have been too late. So here's Josephus. I mean, he, he cites this massive cultural event when crowds were flocking out. They were so massive, flocking out to John, the Herod became concerned. And we don't know exactly how many people were there. Matthew just simply says, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region, which might be a little bit of a hyperbole, but it had to be a substantial number of people. We know by studies of ancient Water sources that that the city of Jerusalem could support no more than eighty five thousand people. So so Jerusalem itself was probably only about eighty five thousand people. The whole area of Judea was probably two hundred and fifty thousand people. But even if one fifth of those people made their way out to see John at some point, it would have been fifty thousand people under his ministry. Incredible. 
in a time with no facilities, in a time with no amplification, in a time with no sort of uh, all the attractions that we have in ministry. It's amazing. And you can understand why Herod would have been concerned. But in spite of all that, John was surprisingly unfazed by the popularity. He was unaffected by any of it. In his personal life, he wasn't intoxicated by his own popularity. He didn't look at it as some sort of avenue through which he can benefit himself personally, network his way into a more, a, a more comfortable lifestyle. He certainly didn't try to hold on to this surge of popularity by moderating his message. In fact, as the people came, he seems to have even amped it up. Which leads to our next point in understanding John's ministry. And you can see how everything Matthew told us kind of unfolds for us to now understand what John says, beginning in verse 7, as he confronts pretenders. He confronts these pretenders. Matthew says that there were these Pharisees and Sadducees who came as a part of the crowd. He doesn't tell us why they're coming. People have wondered all along, why would they be here? They were insincere. They were duplicitous. They might have been curious observers, or maybe they wanted to question his doctrine like they would later question Jesus' doctrine. Maybe they wanted to, maybe they, maybe they even wanted sort of an endorsement from the popular preacher for their righteousness. Who knows? But they seem to be coming and at least presenting themselves as a part of the sincere crowd, maybe presenting themselves as, as candidates for John's baptism. And John has to correct them for their false motives. By the way, Jews would have been familiar with baptisms. If you go across Israel today, you can see they have all of these what they call mikvahs, all these ba- uh, uh, baptismal pools that are um, throughout the country. They had steps. You would walk down into one side, you would immerse yourself in the water, and then you'd walk back out the other side. In some cases, as if people were ritually preparing themselves to enter into the temple or maybe to enter into a synagogue. But John's baptism was different. First of all, people weren't baptizing themselves. John was down in the water baptizing with them. He was baptizing them, I should say. And second, it wasn't about making them ritually pure for a period of time. As if they would sort of do this occasionally to get themselves sort of topped up with God and and make Him happy with them again. His baptism represented something much, much more massive. It was a representation of an internal work. It symbolized something that had taken place in their heart. It symbolized a life of repentance. Not just a, not just a, a bad night, not just a moment of guilt, but a life of repentance. Again, even Josephus seems to have understood this. We don't know if he went and heard John himself, but he carefully explains how John's baptism was not in itself a means of forgiveness of sins, but it was a symbol, rather, of a soul already purified by righteousness. He says, he writes this, now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, 
And that very justly as punishment for what he did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism for for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to put away the remission of some sins only, but the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So here's a complete unbeliever, and he seemed to have gotten the message. A guy who never, uh, never really embraced Christ, but he seemed to understand at least what John was saying. This wasn't, this wasn't just some one act of purification. This was an act that symbolizes and memorializes a repentance that took place beforehand. A kind of renewal in your heart. Just like our baptism. When you go for Christian baptism, it's not something that makes you right before God, but it represents a work that God's done in your heart. John was sort of the precursor to that. Now, these Pharisees and Sadducees didn't seem to get any of that. Here they are. They're coming out to John and, and probably wanting to parade publicly so that everyone, everyone can see and maybe, maybe even congratulate them for their religious zeal. They loved praise, Jesus told us. Here they were maybe wanting John's approval, but none of it with a genuine heart, all of it under a pretense. And John's unwilling to play. He will not give them this religious platform to prop themselves up. They're phonies, they're hypocrites, and he knew it. And so he refuses to baptize them, like any faithful minister of the gospel would when someone's coming and there is no evidence in their life of transformation. He refuses to baptize them. He demands... In verse 8, that they show fruits of repentance before he'll baptize them. There isn't anything automatic in their request. In fact, he questions them very directly in verse 7. He questions their sincerity. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who suggested that you should try to escape the coming wrath? There's absolutely nothing about John's style or his approach that would be called smooth or easy here. There's nothing about his approach that suggests that he was concerned with what they thought of him personally or what they would turn around and say about him to other people. He had no interest in earning their approval as he preached to them. His style was strong, it was direct, and it was designated to devastate to absolutely devastate any notion of self-righteousness that they had. Because John understood the danger of this kind of pride. He understood the danger of this kind of self-righteousness. He probably understood that when dealing with these kinds of religious hypocrites, that their pride was so deep-rooted and they were already so blinded by their their own sort of facade of religion that it required this kind of blunt confrontation. 
it took these kinds of words to communicate to them that they were not going to be allowed to parade their spirituality, that they were not going to be allowed to go on in some sort of uh, a pretense of self-righteousness, that they were not going to be allowed to engage in some sort of dialogue where they were going to prove their superior knowledge and Bible uh, 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 insights or any of that stuff. They weren't going to be allowed to twist this conversation like they twisted the conversation with everyone else and to puff up their prestige. He was not going to allow it. And so he uses some of the strongest language you could imagine. You brood of vipers. Remarkable language. Jesus himself will actually use the very same words when he talks to these kinds of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew 12, 34, Matthew 23, 33, Jesus himself speaks to people this way. This is the way you confront these guys. John understood it. Jesus understood it. And it doesn't take a lot of exegetical ingenuity to realize he's not paying him a compliment, right? He doesn't just call them vipers, uh, deadly little snakes that sometimes people would step on or sometimes pick up like they were twigs. He calls them offspring, a brood of vipers. The name viper is actually a Latin word from the Latin word vipera, which itself is a combination of two words, vivis and parare. Vivis means living and parare means to give birth because a viper is uh, for many years thought to be the only viviparous reptile or their only viviparous snake. That is to say that they were the only snakes who actually gave birth live. All other snakes lay eggs. But vipers hatch their eggs in their womb and then the mother over a series of days or sometimes over a couple of weeks will deliver the babies one by one in a series. Ancient writers, however, took note of this sort of curious thing and they named them according to their characteristics. They're the ones who give live birth. But a number of them note, Pliny the Elder, for example, Plutarch, in their natural history. They, they take note that in the process of this birthing, the last few remaining offspring in the womb would continue to grow. In fact, they would get so uncomfortable. Pliny actually says they get impatient. So they actually chew their way out of their mother's womb, killing the mother in the process. So these were not just evil snakes. They were particularly evil kind of snakes because they killed their own mothers. Incredibly harsh language. Ruthless. Now John isn't doing this just for the sake of being hostile and he isn't doing it just for the sake of being ungenerous. He's doing it for the sake of penetrating through the fog of their religious facade. He understood what Proverbs 15 tells us. 
Proverbs 15 in verses 31, 32, some of my favorite verses. It says, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. He understood that uh, if God was working in them, then they would hear reproof. They would respond. He understood that if they didn't respond, it was, they, it was not them despising Him. They was in the despising themselves. I'm sure John didn't enjoy this any more than anyone else enjoys this. You remember Paul over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He had to say some very harsh words. He had to write what he called a severe letter rebuking the Corinthian church. And when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he, he reflects on that. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. Paul says, I, I'm not regretful now. I'm t- so thankful. He says, I, I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces repentance, he says in verse 10, that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief, worldly sorrow produces death. Whether it's John or Paul or I'm sure even Jesus, no one likes speaking this way. I mean, it's... The struggle of all of our hearts when we're dealing with somebody who has been blinded by the fog of their own self-righteousness, who has been duped by all of their own lies, it's the difficulty that every one of us have to want to shrink back, to want to sort of pander to their favor, to want to sort of make allowances for them in all of their manipulative ways. But John wasn't going to do that. Paul says, look, it grieved me. I regretted. I wrote that letter. I wrote it to you. I sent it off with the messengers. And then immediately I kind of went back to myself and I started thinking, was I too harsh? Did I say too much? Did I come across too hard? I regretted it. Like so many of us do. When we're confronting the unrepentant, we speak to them, we try to penetrate through the fog, and then we immediately go back with all of this kind of self-doubt and all this kind of worry and all this kind of fear, and you begin to regret. But Paul says, I don't regret it now because I see what it did, and it's exactly what it's supposed to do. You have to speak this harsh language to penetrate through the fog of Religious facades, superficial, insincere repentance. Because those kinds of things tend to give people a false sense of security. It gives them a false sense of security. They go around telling themselves they're okay. It hardens their heart to hearing the truth, to examining the true state of their life and their soul. And John wouldn't engage... He wouldn't engage them in their games. So he confronts them with their misconceptions about themselves. Their idea that they can just sort of go through their life 
sort of riding on the, the uh, accolades and the applause of the people that they manipulate around them. And here they show up to go through one other religious activity and, and supposing themselves that they'll earn his favor as well. Well, he says, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. In fact, he, he goes on to say to them, you can't assume that you're in the right standing with God, that God's going to show you special favor because of where you are or who you are or your privileged relationship. He even says in verse 9, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. They couldn't count on their position or their background because they were part of a particular group or part of a particular nation or part of a particular sect. Or in our own day, we would say part of a particular church or part of a particular family. You can't presume that then God automatically considers you to be one of his people. You might be a snake in the grass. You might be a viper hiding out among God's people. And he essentially tells them that even stones have a more of a chance of being the children of God than you. A rock. One of, you might say, one of the most unpromising materials from which to see life begin to spring. You can't plant anything in it. It doesn't hold water. It doesn't have nutrients that can feed anything. And yet God can make genuine children out of rocks. Which is just simply another way of saying that when God makes someone a child of God, He doesn't do it by natural means. He doesn't do it by all the sort of expected ways. You, sure, you might have been brought up in the church and you might have been brought up in a Christian home and you might have tons of Bible knowledge and your parents taught you this, that, and the other thing. It doesn't really matter because that's not what makes you a child of God. You're no better than a rock. You're just as hard as a stone. At some point, you have to be made into a child of God by the work of God, and it is as dramatic as God taking a stone and turning him into a child. He has to transform you, and he will, and he can if he wants to, if he works in your heart. There is no one, no matter how hardened they are, no matter how distant they are, it doesn't matter if they're in a Christian home, in a Christian church, in a Christian nation, it doesn't matter. God's able to turn anyone into His child. You might imagine God has a pretty easy time with you because you're mostly there. I mean, you've been in all the right places, you've been around all the right people, but none of that stuff matters. There has to be a genuine, sincere work of God deep down in your heart. And John says it has to bear fruit. It has to manifest itself in your life in changed behavior. Changed behavior. All this leads us to the final way we can understand the way John prepared these people. And that is with a warning of punishment. A punishment that he warned them about beginning in verse 10. He'd given them all this very clear picture of their spiritual state, themselves as a brood of vipers. Now he wants them to understand the condemnation that is imminent, that they face right now. 
He'd already told them about the coming wrath. Remember back in verse 8, he warned them, or he asked them, who, who warned you to flee from this wrath? Sort of a, a rhetorical question because they didn't really see themselves under God's wrath, which is part of the problem. They just assumed that God loved them. But John wants them to know if they don't have fruit in their life, they're very much under God's wrath. And so he says, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that isn't bearing or doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There were so many warnings about this in the Old Testament for Israel that they didn't get. Even the prophecies about John the Baptist or the prophecies, I should say, about the coming messenger before the Messiah, they were embedded with this, this idea of a warning of judgment. Malachi chapter 3 talks about the coming one who would prepare the way of the Lord. It says, behold, uh, right after that, it says, behold, days are coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The day is coming, and it will set them ablaze, and the Lord of hosts will do it. So, it, that is, that day will leave neither root nor branch. It's going to burn up the whole tree. And here's John the Baptist, and he comes along right where Malachi had left off, ending the Old Testament, telling them there would be neither root nor branch left over. And he tells them that the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. It's as if God is set it there to take one final grip on the handle before he sets it back on his shoulder to take that final swing at the base to bring them down. John's warning them, your life, the evidence of your life, it doesn't look like Abraham. It doesn't look like anything God demands. It doesn't look like anything that has fruit. In fact, it looks, when you look at it, it looks more like a slippery viper. It looks like a parent eater, a parent hater, a society hater. It looks like a, a proud and, and self-righteous person. It looks like a hypocrite. And he warns them in the most graphic terms that God is not necessarily going to be patient with you. He, he's coming. He goes on to tell him in verse 10, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one's coming after me that's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Don't think that I'm anything. Don't worry about my words. Don't think that I'm really anything. I, in fact, one coming after me is what much, much greater than I am. I'm just a man. I can immerse you with water, bring you back up, but you might come out of that water just the same. But he's coming and he can immerse you with his Holy Spirit, with power. I'm natural. He's supernatural. I'm lowly. He's... Almighty, He's exalted. Mine are mere words. His are spirit and power. He's coming and He's mightier than I. 
And He can baptize you. He can transform you. He can remake you with the Holy Spirit. Or with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand. He's going to clear, utterly clear His threshing floor. No one's going to escape. You will either be gathered with the wheat into the barn or you'll be gathered with the chaff and thrown out into unquenchable, everlasting, never-ending fire. That's what's going to happen. The choice is in front of you. Will you respond? Will you repent? Will you confess all of your religious games? Will you deal with the Savior in your heart? John's preparing you. He's preparing you so that God can enter your heart if you'll listen. He's preparing you. He's telling you exactly what needs to happen before you can receive Christ. Will you receive Him today? Lord, we're so mindful as we read this of what a faithful preacher John was, how you worked through him, how we need to learn from him. We pray, Father, that you would make us these kinds of ministers. More importantly, we pray for those who are here today who have not received you. They are playing the game of the hypocrite. They are, whether they are exalted in front of the eyes of others or not, they are hypocrites. They're playing to the applause of other people and not looking for their praise from you alone. Lord, I pray for them today. I pray that their hearts would be prepared, that a highway would be made into their hearts so that you can enter in. And I pray that they would be saved. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.